From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, our politics today is haunted by the failures of Bill Clinton. The centrist who triangulated with Republicans lost on health care and proclaimed that the era of big government is over. Nelson Lichtenstein will explain Clinton's turn to the right and the lessons for today's Democrats. His new book on Clinton is called A Fabulous Failure. But first, power to the people in Maine. That's on the ballot there next month. Bill McKibben will explain in a minute. Voters in Maine will decide next month whether to turn the state's private utilities public. If that happens, it would be a huge step toward dealing with the climate crisis and a model for other states. For comment, we turn to Bill McKibben. Of course, he's an author and environmentalist. He's written more than a dozen books, most recently The Flag, The Cross, and The Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. And of course, Bill is a founder of 350.org, a planet-wide collaboration of organizers, community groups, and regular people fighting for a fossil-free future. Among other things, 350.org has pushed for divestment. As a result, more than 1,500 universities, foundations, cities, and churches have divested more than $40 trillion from fossil fuels. Bill teaches at Middlebury College in Vermont. He writes for The New Yorker, The New Yorker Review of Books, and The Nation. Bill, welcome back. Well, very good to be with you. And I will add, and it's pertinent here with this stuff we're going to talk about in Maine, most of my work these days isn't at 350, but at Third Act, where we're organizing people over the age of 60, like me, for action on climate and democracy and having a very good time at it. And this uh, main public power proposal that we want to talk about, that really combines around these issues of climate and democracy in powerful ways. Third act. So who owns Maine's electric utilities now? Well, there's two big private utilities, and they're uh, all based out of state. And the significant number is that they repatriate out of Maine about $187 million a year in profit uh, back to their shareholders in Calgary or overseas or wherever they're headquartered. So that $187 million, if this was a public utility, some of that could be captured to lower rates. And then this utility would also be able, because it wouldn't be trying to make the same 10 or 15% return on investment for its uh, shareholders, it would be able to undertake a lot more of the necessary upgrades to really bring renewable energy fully online um, and help in the climate work. It's a perfect example of just how forms of corporate capitalism have gotten us in all kinds of deep holes now. Of course, the transition to renewables wouldn't be automatic. What would it take for uh, public controlled utilities in Maine to make the transition? Well, look, uh, you got to build a lot of stuff. You got to put up a lot of solar panels and a lot of wind turbines. Maine is ideally suited for this. And Maine actually just changed its law with the help of the uh, AFL in the state to make the development of offshore wind out in the Gulf of Maine uh, much more attractive. And I think that's going to be a very big deal. 
but Maine in general needs the same, you know, transmission upgrades and all the other things we need across the country to let us use more of this distributed renewable energy. The big private utilities have a vested interest in slow walking all those transitions as best they can. A public utility wouldn't have that. Uh, it would be able to move much more nimbly, even as it was producing lower rates because it wasn't having to send so much money uh, out of state for something else. I think we sometimes forget about energy prices, both with utilities and with the fossil fuel that we buy to heat our homes or power our cars, just what an extraordinary economic drain it is on almost every place in the country. Wherever we are, unless we're in Texas or Louisiana, we're basically sending uh, uh, billions of dollars a year, state by state, off to the Koch brothers, off to Exxon, off to Saudi Arabia. If that money stayed close to home, it would be a huge, maybe the biggest imaginable economic uh, revitalization fund going. And I mean, the good news is that every place on the planet has sun and wind. We don't need to rely on the Saudis or the Texans. The cheapest way to generate power on our planet now is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. So if we can just overcome some of this vested interest and inertia, we can make progress pretty fast here. Maine will vote in about a month. Uh, what kind of campaign are the private utilities running? <laughs> An expensive one. <laughs> uh, they're outspending the grassroots coalition uh, at the latest count, 32 to one. Mm. Um, they've spent going on $30 million and the uh, young people running this campaign to take to take public these utilities have spent less than a million dollars. They had a lead going in in the polls because everybody hates their utilities. And in Maine, particularly, they shut off service to huge numbers of people a year. But I worry that kind of money, you know, just stoking people's fears 24 seven uh, on the TV over and over again. And, you know, one of the things that's really depressing about it is the you know, PR and ad firms and stuff that they hired. These are people, you know, left over from the Obama administration and things <laughs> who are doing the dirty deed on behalf of the utilities. I learned from your article in The Nation that the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers and with them, the main AFL is siding with the bosses and opposing public ownership of utilities. Why is that? Well, <laughs> The convoluted reasoning, which I think is wrong, is that if it becomes a public utility, then they won't be able to strike as easily. Uh, but in fact, the people proposing this who are very union friendly have put in a lot of provisions to obviate that. I, I'm afraid that this is just one of these cases where the union's just kind of comfortable with the status quo um, and isn't thinking about any of the larger social uh, or environmental uh, factors with it. You know, um, unions are a good progressive force, but that doesn't mean that they're always on the side of, <laughs> of uh, progressive action. Uh, there's a lot of instances in American history where they get pretty easily captured by the bosses. 
I saw that the Maine State Nurses mm. Association, which represents more than 2,000 nurses in the state, has endorsed the referendum taking electric utilities wow. public. So labor's divided here. That's right. And the nurses are great, you know, yeah. as the nurses who were the biggest, earliest union backers of Bernie's campaigns. Yeah. That's because nurses have to, they end up downstream of all the other trouble we gets caused. They're the ones who have to patch people up when there's floods and forest fires. They're the ones who deal with all the people who get to breathe the particulates from burning coal and gas and oil. Um, they understand in a very deep way what it is we're doing to this planet and the bodies that depend on it. So one can always count on the nurses to be doing the right thing here. This uh, November 8th, ballot in Maine has a second related provision intended to undermine the move to public ownership of utilities. If that one passes, this other one requires another referendum <laughs> to approve the funding of the takeover. So yeah. even if you win, it looks like you're going to have to do this all over again. These guys are, these guys are um, nothing if not committed to preserving their business model at all costs, even if that business model is you know, taking down the planet, which it currently is. Yeah, it's it's always an uphill fight. But the people, primarily young people behind this referendum have done a really good job of informing Mainers as best they can. It's pretty much the biggest item on the ballot. There's no elections, it's just a referendum. So it's hard to predict the turnout. And it's possible that people who are for public power are more fired up than people who are just being scared by TV ads every night. Well, I also want to talk about a, a related but separate topic, the, tr the transition to electric vehicles, which you've written about recently in the New York Review. Joe Biden spending tens of billions of dollars to fund the transition, but you point out that Battery-powered cars and trucks pose some of the same problems as gasoline-powered cars and trucks. Namely, they still require roads and parking spaces. And it was the parking spaces that got my attention in your wonderful piece. There's a, a new book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World by Henry Graybar. The facts you cite are amazing. How many parking spaces are there in, say, Phoenix? <laughs> There's way more parking spaces than there are people. The thing that really got me is that there's more parking space per car in America than there is living space per person. You know, an alien would be um, forgiven for believing that the dominant species on our planet is automobiles. I will say, just to go back to where we began, that there is no question that if we're going to drive cars, electric ones are a lot better for the world in every way than uh, uh, internal combustion ones. They're more efficient. They use less stuff by far. They don't produce the same amount of carbon and they don't put stuff into the air that causes you to uh, get childhood asthma. But there's other exciting things going on right now. I mean, I think it's possible that the most interesting emerging technology right now is less the electric car than the electric bicycle, yeah. which really is a remarkable piece of technology, John. The, uh, the uh, you know, it just flattens out the hills and it makes bike riding uh, as a kind of primary means of transport 
really available to lots and lots and lots more people who don't think of themselves as athletes and don't want to wear spandex and <laughs> you know so on and so forth, but are uh, just rediscovering that this is an extremely efficient, affordable, sensible way of transit. So more bike lanes and of course more electric buses. Electric buses are terrific. And you know where the easiest place and probably most important place to begin that transition or to really ramp up that transition is with electric school buses. There's these buses idling in front of schools hour on end. Um, we don't want kids breathing what comes out of the back of those diesel engines. We want nice, quiet electric school bus. There's money in the IRA to get some of that done and communities should be thinking hard about it. Bill McKibben, he wrote about cars for the New York Review and about Maine's referendum on public ownership of electric utilities for The Nation. You can read them at thenation.com. Bill, thank you for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. A real pleasure. We're going to get back to work organizing all this third act stuff that we're doing to take on, especially uh, uh, these big liquefied natural gas export terminals. So we'll get ready to talk about that next time. But it's exciting. And if you come across, you know, any old people like me, send them our way. Bill McKibben, thanks again. Take care, man. Our politics today is haunted by the failures of Bill Clinton. That's what Nelson Lichtenstein argues in his new book on Clinton titled A Fabulous Failure. Nelson is a research professor at UC Santa Barbara, author of 16 books, including State of the Union, A Century of American Labor. He writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, The Guardian, and The Nation. Nelson Lichtenstein, welcome back. Glad to be here. Well, I think we have to start with the fabulous title of your book on Bill Clinton, A Fabulous Failure. Where does that come from? Well, uh, two rather prominent economists, uh, Janet Yellen and Alan Blinder, in the year 2000, uh, Yellen is now Secretary of Treasury, uh, wrote a little book, short book, called a, The Fabulous Decade, or A Fabulous Decade. And they did point out correctly uh, that, you know, unemployment was very low in the late 90s, uh, the the budget was balanced. Uh, the stock market was booming. And so they called it a fabulous decade. <laughs> they wrote it in 2000. I'm writing this 20 odd years later. And it's clear that many of the things that Clinton did in, in the world of economics sort of blew up. <laughs> you know, maybe not right then, but, you know, of course, 2008. And then more generally, the economic hollowing out of the Midwest. Clinton was a fabulous politician, in many ways, very successful politician, very the first Democrat to win re-election since FDR. So I titled A Fabulous Failure. Now we think of Bill Clinton as the centrist who triangulated with Republicans to move American manufacturing offshore, as you say, complete the transformation of the industrial heartland into the Rust Belt, eviscerating the American labor movement, adopting right-wing ideas like ending welfare as we know it. Of course, he recruited Wall Street support for the Democratic Party by deregulating banks and telecommunications. And he proclaimed the era of big government is over. Reagan himself couldn't have said it better. 
But you say that's not the program Bill Clinton campaigned on. When he first ran in 1992, he ran, you say, as a progressive. So tell us about the Clinton agenda in 1992, which I guess begins with James Carville's unforgettable slogan, it's the economy, stupid. Right. Clinton did run as a, a more progressive figure than certainly than Jimmy Carter and anyone since LBJ. Uh, and he had a lot of ideas and people around him. Uh, the phrase industrial policy, which is now in the, uh, the news, Biden's really a build back better uh, is really industrial policy. He was in favor of that. His health uh, reform proposal was was actually to the left, I think, of, of the one that was eventually passed under Obama. He wanted to keep his eyes focused on the economy, not on culture war issues, which some of his advisors were in favor. And of course, the Republicans were beginning to do at that time. Um, and so part of the failure is a failure of, of a progressive initiative. Let's start with health care, which for millions yeah. of people was the biggest failure of, of the Clintons. We thought Bill and Hillary we're going to transform the country and create universal coverage, health insurance for all Americans. And they, the plan was that they, they thought they had the support of some of the most powerful forces on the business side, the big insurance companies that would make a lot of money from a government program that paid them. And also they thought they had the support of the big unionized employers like GM who would not have to pay health benefits to workers if the government took over. So by preserving private insurance companies they thought it seemed like this would pass and and become law what went wrong with the clinton health care plan that's right there was a big slice of american capital that was burdened by health care costs uh, usually the manufacturing sector and they wanted something uh, that you know that would relieve them of that cost and the clinton plan would do that and those firms would then have some influence on the republican party they overestimated that for sure. Of course, it had opposition. And it wasn't just from the right wing of the Republican Party. Newt Gingrich's power was growing, a kind of hostility to any sort of reform. But what was also happening was I think the Clintons sort of misjudged the shape of where power really lay in the economy, less with General Motors and more with Walmart. And by the way, they weren't the only ones. The uh, editors of Fortune magazine had kept the retailers, low-wage, low-benefit retailers, out of the Fortune 500 until the year 1995. And then they say, well, I think we better put Walmart and Sears. <laughs> there. What happens? They come up number four or number five, and, and by the year 2000, Walmart's the biggest uh, company by sales and by employment in the country. So the, the Clintons kind of misjudged that. That's why I think the shape of American capitalism, the nature, who's where, where certain people are strong, where they're weak, you know, in terms of trade, in terms of finance, this is essential for historians to understand why Clinton failed and why today, you know, is Biden going to succeed or fail? And, you know, and I think we have to understand those things. That's that's what I'm trying to, to get at. It's not just the foibles of Bill or Hillary or anyone else, you know, uh, et cetera. It's, it's really more fundamental than that. Clinton brought us a lot of the economic changes that Reagan had argued for, the market ruling everything, Wall Street in command. But, but when Clinton became president, you point out in the book, there were other varieties of capitalism in the world. And several of, of those were a lot closer to what Clinton 
tried to do in Arkansas and what he and a lot of his advisors were interested in to use the power of the state to boost the economy. And he brought people into his cabinet who wanted him to do that, especially Robert Reich, the Secretary of Labor. So there was a, a big debate inside the Clinton administration and the progressive side had some good models in the world and some good arguments, arguments that Clinton was sympathetic to. Yes, initially, yes. I mean, I, one of the, the slogans that, that was around, uh, Paul Sangas, who, who ran against Clinton uh, in the 92 primaries, but he, he had a phrase. He said, the Cold War is over. Germany and Japan won. And <laughs> Clinton agreed with that, basically. The Germany and Japan represented these different models of, of capitalism, you know, a, a sort of social market in Germany and, and Japan, a kind of finance, banks, big companies, all sort of much closer together in a kind of corporatist arrangement. And Clinton, as governor of Arkansas, a very poor state, he was desperately trying to figure out how to industrialize it and, you know, get more jobs and better jobs. And he went all over the world, uh, to northern Italy, to Germany, Japan, etc., looking for looking for models, not just sort of investment. Oh, we have cheap labor, come. But looking for models. He, he didn't really want that cheap labor argument for investing in, in Arkansas. And he had people he brought into the administration. Robert Reich, uh, who today is, is, is actually much more to the left than he was in 1992. But the other, the other figure I think is kind of very interesting is uh, Laura Tyson, who was a um, <clears throat> Berkeley. She, she and others had this roundtable on international economics. They were very much in favor of both industrial policy at home, meaning Yes, we're going to target new investments in the same way that Biden's doing it now, and also manage trade abroad, meaning, no, we aren't going to just let the free market. And so when Clinton had to decide who was going to be chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, this tells you about his mindset at this time. So who, who are the candidates? Larry Summers, who would go on to be, you know, uh, kind of a very conservative figure, although he his background wasn't that. Paul Krugman, who of course now is very famous, and, and but at that time he was very much an advocate of, of free trade. And Laura Tyson. Laura Tyson was by far a, a less distinguished economist than the other two, but she was an advocate of industrial policy of the same sort that Clinton and Reich and Ira Magaziner and many others were thinking about. So she was made head of the Council of Advisors. Unfortunately, as head of that council, I don't think she did that much with it, but but she was selected because of her particular economic policies. You, you say the Treasury Department became the most important oh, yeah. force in the Clinton administration. Ex explain that. Yes. Well, I say there were two forces that Clinton really could not control and was quite frustrated. One was the Federal Reserve Board run by Alan Greenspan, which, you know, is, has been independent for you know half more than half a century and and is always kind of an independent force uh, for any president the second is treasury where first lloyd benson a, a more conservative texas senator and then then mainly robert rubin were secretary treasury and the the reason i say that you in theory you know all cabinet positions are subordinate to the to the president but the kind of the uh, weight and authority of the more orthodox, and or you could call them neoliberal, and we could define that phrase in a second, neoliberal economists at Treasury was so great that I found time and again, Clinton would have some progressive idea. Hey, can we limit executive salaries? Or what about the, the East Asian countries are getting all this hot money? What can we do about that? And he'd send this over to Treasury, and, and back would come a five-page, single-space, well-argued, 
no. <laughs> <laughs> and about at one point, George Soros, he was interested in structuring and managing capitalist money flows. And, and Clinton loved his book and, and, you know, and, and underlined it and told his aides to read it. And he sends it over to Treasury. And of course, they come back with a complete denunciation of it. <laughs> so this tells you something about government. If you want to have a government that's going to carry out a more progressive line and the president's elected on that basis, you've got to have the people to do it. So Clinton's idea was that a globalized economy would give the United States the high technology, high skilled, entrepreneurial heart of the world economy. And indeed, we did get Apple. But we also, in that era, as you say, we got Walmart, we got McDonald's, we got Amazon, low wage, low skilled retail companies that have fought unions ruthlessly. How much of that is Clinton's responsibility? Well, obviously, these things were happening independent of the president. Clinton didn't come in with that idea that you just expressed. He was defeated. And then by the second term, very much Clinton and people around him are talking about a new economy. That's the phrase, new economy, uh, which meant Silicon Valley, transformations of, of telecommunications, uh, all of that. And they were, you know, very excited about it. Uh, they were, they thought, well, we don't need regulation. You know, we can have deregulation. We can have free trade because we're going to be on the top. Uh, and I think they were seduced by that idea. And really, the new economy was not just Silicon Valley. It was it was Walmart. It, it was low wage service yeah. sector. I mean that. I mean, and when you look at the number of jobs being created, you know the the number of janitors and home healthcare workers and retail clerks does in fact far outstrip the number of computer programmers and and things of that sort. They there were still. I mean, I could go into this. There were still some things that in the second term that were that they did. For example, chips, the children's health insurance program, which was a kind of consolation prize for not getting uh, health insurance. The, the big plan that that went into effect, very successful, and and the, and all the Clinton people were very proud of that, and and they're they're right to be because it it helped tens of millions of of kids. But basically, the the economy was much increasingly financialized and tremendous deregulation, which really were clicking time bombs, which would in fact explode in the next decade. So your argument in this book is that Clinton's turn to the right was not, I'm quoting, not merely a product of defeat at the hands of corporate enemies and political foes. It was also bred by a series of illusions, his illusions. And in some cases, the chickens didn't come home to roost for a long time. It was eight years before we got the financial crisis in 2008. How much is Clinton to blame for that? This is the deregulation of derivatives. It wasn't as if these things, uh, where there were no people inside the administration saying, this is a bad idea. <laughs> there were. Now, derivatives are kind of insurance products that that are really wagers that seemingly are safe bets because some companies are not going to go bankrupt and therefore you can have a highly highly leveraged insurance as it were you know and and you know you'll, you'll come out okay but sometimes it doesn't happen so the, the idea of the deregulation of derivatives their sale without any regulations there was a big debate about this a woman named brooksley born who was head of the commodities future trading corporation which had usually in the past oh it would it would regulate hog bellies and, and corn futures well Futures on stocks, futures on, on, on other kinds of, 
of financial instruments, which derivatives were, she wanted to regulate them and said, this is this stuff is, is growing by leaps and bounds. It's unregulated and it's going to explode. Fortune magazine had articles. You know, yes, it's, you know, saying that they call them alligators in a swamp. They're ready to snap. Mm. But. Rubin, Robert Rubin, and Larry Summers, and others, they all, again, came down on Brooksley Bourne with like a ton of bricks, and uh, a financial law was passed which completely unregulated derivatives. And these things grew by the trillions and trillions of dollars, and then they, they imploded in 2008 and nine, just completely imploded. Looking at lessons that Clinton's successors learned from yeah. his failures and disasters, Obama did pass his number one priority a national health care program obamacare is not what we wanted it's not what he had promised but he succeeded where clinton failed what had obama learned from the failure of the clintons why did he succeed where the clintons yeah. failed well i think he succeeded because he did see what what, it, what it, and the problems of, of uh Clinton, which was various uh, sectors of, of capital, big insurance, certain kinds of insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, abandoned ship. They, they said, no, we don't want to do that. So, so Obama said, I'm going to structure this so Walmart can be on board. So the big insurance companies will make more money. And he made, and there were, they were, these deals, you think of Obama as kind of a uh, idealistic character. They made some real crude deals in the, in the run up to that. And therefore the big, big insurance, big pharma, the, the, the low wage retailers were not opposed. The Republican party, yes, was a hundred percent opposed to Obamacare, but I think the fact that it passed anyway, that there weren't that many defections among the Democrats, indicates it's because the big players, the big companies, they said, yeah, we're going along with this, and they weren't going to lobby against it, and they didn't. So I think Obama learned that. He also put a tax, paid for it with a progressive tax, which I think Clinton was afraid to do. And I think that turned out, that was also one of the reasons for opposition, but that turned out to make one of the most progressive features of Obamacare uh, is, in fact, its tax uh, system. That was eight and nine years after Clinton, 16, year, 16 yeah, right. years after Bill left office, Hillary lost the presidency to yeah. Donald Trump. And you call Election Day 2016 the Clinton's Day of Reckoning. Uh, let's talk about that. Is Trump really part of the Clinton legacy? Well, insofar as he, for a moment there, and, and, and clearly his main appeal is ethno-nationalism and, and worse, but, there, but in 16, he did, in fact, win some of those Midwestern states that, it, that had been hollowed out by, by trade with China. And, and China was not a, a, a fair trading partner in any way, shape, or form. China certainly was managing its trade with the U.S. Anyway, Trump took advantage of that. And I would also say that that by 2016, I mean, you know, if you're in politics for 25 years, and Hillary was, you know, you become a more tempered kind of figure. And so she really, she had no program that could really excite. And, the, and, and, and Bernie, Bernie Sanders, he didn't have to denounce Hillary to make her look bad. He just had to say, this is what I stand for. And, and in comparison, she just looked tepid, really. And so, you know, Trump uh, squeaks in there. I mean, he, she still won three million more votes than he did, but nevertheless, he squeaked in there. And the Clintons uh, ha are in the doghouse. And I think the re they were not in the doghouse until 2015. Bill had given a very uh, good speech in 2012 defending Obamacare at the Democratic National Convention. Hillary was kind of a popular secretary of state. But it was when 
Bernie on one side, Trump on the other. That just put the, the Clintons in the doghouse. You say Trump's victory over Hillary had one salutary impact. What was that? Usually when the Democrats get defeated, they move to the right. Uh, that was true after Carter. And it was true, I think it's true after uh, Clinton and defeated by Bush. Usually they move to the right. But when Trump wins, the Democrats move to the left. Uh, and I think part of the reason is that the Democrats were more united. The Southern Democrats were gone. The other thing, of course, is that Trump did put on the agenda issues of trade in a way. And I think the illusions about free trade and creating, for example, democracy in China or civil society in China, I think those were, uh, were, were coming apart. And in fact, today, are, 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 no one would, would, would make, that, make, make the point either economically or, or politically about the virtues of free trade. Last question. What do you think Joe Biden has learned from the failures of Bill Clinton? Well, Joe Biden was a centrist Democrat, really a kind of Clinton loyalist, but uh, he realized that, that a kind of industrial policy, a reindustrialization was important both economically and politically in the Midwest. And, you know, he brought into his administration some people who were who would have considered really radical in the 1990s, Alina Khan at the Federal Trade Commission and others, uh, at, at Brian Deese in charge of industrial policy uh, at the National Economic Council. He has brought all these young left liberals or even radicals in and gave them positions of responsibility and pushed through some very large trillion dollar bills of, involving inf infrastructure and the welfare state that were way beyond what Clinton could even have conceived. And I think that Biden thought, well, there's a thirst for that, and I'm going to do it. You know, kudos to him. Nelson Lichtenstein, his new book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency in the Transformation of American Capitalism. Nelson, thanks for this terrific book, and thanks for talking with us today. Great to be here. I appreciate it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>